Well, we're back again with another episode of Contextualize. It's AJ and Jim. Thursday, morning edition. Barely. It's 11, oh, it is. 11 it's 11.58. So, morning edition for the moment. Absolutely. So, uh, well, we are going to jump into 2 Samuel chapter 6, um, which has some... It's got some action in it, which uh, I guess shouldn't surprise us from what we've been reading. And uh, as our small group last night got back into Judges, man, like these Old Testament narratives are just filled with fascinating stories. So tons. um, Anyways, uh, so what what we'll uh, what we'll start out with though is our theological tidbit. Man, I should have been saying that all three weeks. Theological tidbit here to start us out. There we go. That sounds good, doesn't it? And uh, so we talked about, last week we talked about, um, not systematic, we talked about exegetical theology, which we said is theology with respect to a text. So today we're going to talk about biblical theology, which is theology with respect to time. Might be the easiest way to think about that. Or it's the idea that scripture is a story, that, that God's revelation and God's redemption progresses or unfolds over the course of time. And so, um, just as, as we think about this, one of the reasons this is important for us is that um, I like that God, one, has, has worked over the course of time. Like, what, what God did, you know, 4,000 years ago um, isn't fundamentally different than what he's doing now, but it, it is different in that there's been progress, right? There's, there's anticipation, there's fulfillment, that kind of thing. And then even as we think about not only his work, but his revelation— like scripture reveals more and the story of scripture progresses over time. In fact, we can even think about the entirety of scripture as one big story. And so biblical theology understands that all of scripture is one big story um, and it kind of gets us into that. So if that's our, our idea, how do we our begin? Tidbit. That's our, that's our, our tidbit. tidbit. There we go. How do we begin to, like, what are, yeah, how do we do biblical theology? Find a good children's Bible. <laughs> Such as what? I mean, there's a couple of them. But I mean, whether it's the Big Picture Story Bible or the story, uh, the Jesus Storybook yep. Bible, I mean, that's just a couple. Yeah. Um, that's tongue-in-cheek, but I'm very, no, that's, I'm very serious when I say that. Uh, that's spot on. How do you summarize the story of Scripture? Yeah. And it's incredibly helpful to have an understanding of the whole story with the faith of a child and even the movements being so big that right. they're followable. There's simplicity. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I meant that when I said it. Yeah. Well, that's that's great. And you mentioned uh, the big picture story Bible, story Bible, which is Dave Helm. And that's that's one of our, that's probably the one we use most frequently in our home. And it's been very helpful. But he basically takes the idea of like God is king or kingdom. God is king, God's people, and God's place with God's blessing. And right, that those kind of ideas he carries out from Genesis mm-hmm. all the way through all the different kind of eras of the Old Testament into the new and into the new heavens and new earth. And so how do we think about those ideas over the course of time throughout Scripture? Yep. yep. So, And we do, I mean, you start to dial in. A children's storybook Bible is not going to have everything but you start to dial in, and there's going to be main themes yeah. that, that come. So we've talked a little bit before, but the, the theme of covenant. Yep. There are covenants all throughout Scripture. So the story can be told by means of covenant as the framework that's kind of holding the parts of the story together. So yeah. the covenant of works with Adam 
followed by the covenant of grace that began with Abraham. But then yeah. you also, you know, you have other covenants that start to just really piece the whole story to the covenant with Noah. Right. Then you have Abraham. Then you have David. Then you have yeah. the new covenant. Yeah. Um, and so, <laughs> again, that would be using covenant as a rubric of uh-huh. the single storyline. Yeah. Um, I think there's others we could use. Probably the most common one I know that really stuck with me from seminary is just the fourfold movements of redemption. Uh-huh. Creation, yeah. fall, redemption, glory. And yeah. You can say it differently, but... Um, and that's the shape of the narrative yeah. of our salvation. And so, again, that takes the timeline of what the scriptures teach, and it has all the main movements. Um, fall is still going to show up in the New Testament era, just like it shows up with the Israelites in Egypt with Pharaoh. Ever since Adam and Eve fell, yeah. fall is still a part of the story. But in redemption, yeah. there's... Microways, we see redemption happening, but it's all progressing through time toward the redemption that's in Christ and yeah. the redemption we're waiting on, yeah. um, which would be obviously the new heavens, new earth, the glorification of our bodies and everything being changed. Yeah. So, but again, there's different summary, I want to say statements, that's not the right word, but there's different ways in which we should be able to tell the yeah. story with a sentence or two or a paragraph. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's not just incumbent upon a teacher or a minister right. of the gospel. That's really something that parents should be able to say to a child, like yeah. in the middle of this moment we're in, where are we at in the story? Uh-huh. Yeah. Or what parts of the big story connect to our micro story? Because our yeah. tendency without a good solid biblical theology is that we're always in crisis mode about the biggest trial that we're facing. Uh-huh. And if we have this big biblical theology of how God is working across time yeah. and how he is accomplishing his purposes, it's a game changer. Yeah. Because I can put my situation now into the story. Right. Absolutely. As opposed to my situation is my big story. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's very applicable. Yeah, and so like it has bearing, right, if we think practically, right, day to day. Um, and then it has bearing, like as we're reading different portions of Scripture, this is incredibly helpful for us. Um, and maybe one of the easiest ways to see this, and we'll give just a couple brief examples. Uh, the story of David and Goliath, well-known, well-loved. Um, and I, I think a tendency... Or a, a common challenge, maybe, would be a better way to say that, with that story, is that it can become very moralistic, of, right? Like, just, just be like David, go kill your Goliath, like, find your strength, like, you can do this, you can be David. But if we think about that story, one, within the context of the book, but, but even secondly, from this biblical theological perspective, we see this idea of kingship, right? David's been called as king. Saul's the king. Saul's not doing the fighting. David's the king, anointed privately. And he goes out and defeats the enemy. And then if we go kind of bigger picture with that, we think, okay, how does that help us see Jesus? Jesus is David in that story, not us. And and that's really a biblical theological move, so to speak, to link David to Jesus rather than us. What you just did is you took that story, you started, and you pan out. I think that's, I mean, in some regards, as a a reader, we want to pan out from the scene and say, okay, what's going on here? Last week we talked about exegetical theology, right. and you're actually you're zooming in, trying not to pan out, you're trying yeah. to zoom in to see what's in the text. Now yep. put something in that's not there, but stick to this text. What's right. in it? Now I've got to place my text within this bigger, broader biblical story. Yeah, pan way out. Yeah, to understand it better. Yeah, now, I'll give just one more, and you, you can say anything you want, and then we'll jump into Second Samuel. But um, another easy example of this would be if you're reading Leviticus. And you're reading these sacrificial laws, uh, or, or you know just the different laws God's giving there. 
we don't just take that and just say, okay, like I need to go do all that God's saying here. Like, let me go find my priest here in town and let's do this. But why? What's well, because we're not at that place in the story. Like that the story has, has progressed and, and that should drive us to a place like Hebrews that talks about how all of the sacrificial system is fulfilled in Jesus. And so since we live post Jesus, how we apply that is different than how they would have applied it a couple thousand years ago. But that, that is a biblical theological understanding that helps us get there. So anything else you would throw One in here? One thing I would say is if you have a Bible with a concordance, it's, you know, how do we how do we do biblical theology for reading a text? Sometimes just look and editors of the scriptures have helped us out. Sometimes there's direct scripture references, but sometimes you're like, hey, this is a theme that's also brought up over there. So yeah. a yeah. good study Bible or even just a concordance. Cross references. I said concordance. Yeah. I meant cross. You know, yeah. Just yeah, what's in my text? Okay. Yeah. Are there other parts of the Bible being referenced here? Yeah. And when we do our preaching prep work, one of the things we talk about with Bill, AJ, Troy, myself is when we want to find the biblical context of a passage we're looking at, we're kind of thinking, okay, where does my author of this text? What does he know the other readers in his audience would have known about the Bible? Yeah. You know, how does right. my text use the Bible? Yeah. Right. I, and that's. Biblical context. Yeah. Biblical theology is something we get to do from our vantage point here. Yeah. After the scriptures have in their canon. Like we have the full canon. We have the full canon. Yeah. So now we say, how does the Bible use my text? Yeah. As yeah. opposed to how does my text use the Bible of its uh, in that yeah. day? And that's kind of another kind of helpful question to get started is, okay, yeah. how would the whole Bible yeah. help me understand what's going on right. in this text? Yeah. Biblical theology. Yeah. And even uh, maybe the most practical thing, you, you said go read a good children's story about Bible. I think that's a great <laughs> starting point in this. Another one is just be reading Old and New Testament at the same time. Like not necessarily in the same moment, but like as we're reading both Testaments, that's helping us get different parts of the story. And we begin to see some connections that we may miss if we're just kind of isolated in one place. Yeah. Um, so that's a way to do that. So, all right. Uh, with that tidbit... We're going to jump into 2 Samuel 6. So last chapter, David publicly anointed as king, right? The, the day has come. Uh, all Israel's gathered under him. He goes out. He defeats the Philistines. And then chapter 6, it's a celebratory time. It starts that way. It is. I mean, he gathers 30,000 men, and Israel, uh, Jerusalem is now the place. And they go to celebrate by carrying the ark of god you know out from where it's been hidden away yep which is which is fantastic yeah and so um right he they they've got uh what is it verse 30 they carried the ark of god on a new cart and brought it out of the house of abinadab which was on the hill and then it talks about these two guys Uzzah and ahio who are who are the ones carrying it um, and so verse 5, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, mentions all these instruments. Um, so it's just this, right, 30,000 men, like it, it's this huge celebration as the ark of God is coming in. Um, but then something happens. Yeah, but and you say huge celebration. I just think one of the things that we see of the king, David is all in. Yeah. I mean, it's it's at David's orders that there's 30,000 people that are going to help bring the ark from point A to point B. Yeah. It's under David's leadership that all of the house of Israel are doing all this dancing and the singing. And, I mean, it is 
it is important for us to see that the king is leading God's people to have this seminal moment of celebration. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we'll see that it carries through that David's heart is not hesitant to rejoice. Right. Right. But he never, never stops being the righteous, the representative king of righteousness. And yeah. this scene that develops is just stark. Yeah. It's a contrast. You have the celebration, but then, excuse me, uh, verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, which is one of the, the gentlemen driving the cart, he put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died beside the ark of God. So, total joy, total celebration. The cart, the ox trips. Yeah, yeah. The ark is unstable. Yeah. So it appears. Uzzah does what is commanded not to be done. He touches the ark, and he's immediately... Right. Immediately dealt with in judgment. Yeah, yeah, and um, and this is something for us to think a lot about, <laughs> um, right? This should, I think, stop us as we're reading it. Um, it's a big deal, and even after this, we read in verse nine, David was afraid of the Lord. He said, "How can the, the ark of the Lord come to me?" And so, instead of bringing it into Jerusalem, into the city of David, he ends up sending it to Obed Edom, and so it goes there for three months. Um, but as we think about this, so one of the things that helps us here is to understand what has God told us about the ark before this. And so and one of the things, even in this passage, like if we go back to verse 2, it says, uh, bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And so the cherubim were carved on top of the ark. Uh, those are like angels spread out on top of the ark. And that's where God had said in, back in Exodus when he told them how to make the ark. He said, that, that's where I'm going to be. Like <laughs> I'm going to dwell there with you, my people. And so then bringing the ark in is then bringing God's presence back in, right? And this should take us back to the beginning of 1 Samuel where the glory departed from Israel and just thinking about how that idea pervades these two books. Uh, But they bring it back in. And uh, the other thing that that helps us here is back in Exodus uh, 25, 14 to 15, I wrote this down. Um, God gives instructions about how to carry the ark. And they're supposed to carry it by poles, yeah. Not on a cart led by oxen, and that like I think that that's, that's a critical the, that's part a of critical what's going on thing. here. Yep. There's a repeat here too, because back in First Samuel six, a very similar thing happens. Because the men of Beth Shemesh they looked upon the ark of the Lord in a way that was disobedient, and they were struck down, uh, and the people of Israel. Their response is, "Who can stand before this Lord?" So remember the ark. Uh-huh. The ark was there, tormenting all the different cities of Philistia. Right. They sent it back, and then the Israelites had the same reaction. They're like, we don't want it. Yeah. I remember kind of talking about it. it's like hot potato is going on with the ark of God because the glory and the presence of God is so potent. Yeah. And now you have the ark rediscovered with David being the one on the throne, and a similar, not exactly the same, a similar scene develops. I think just the grandeur and the glory of obeying the specific, of, of needing to obey the specific injunctions yeah. in God's law. Yeah. Carry it with poles, not buy an ox and on a cart. Right. These minor things that we want quickly to look past until something like this happens. And yeah. then man's justice starts to creep in. I mean, you actually have a little bit, you mentioned David's fear in verse 9. Yeah. 
I think it's important that it also sinks verse with eight. his anger in yeah. verse 8. Yeah. Verse 8, David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And then verse 9, David's afraid. Yeah. How, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So yeah. what does it look like to have the king have a proper posture of humility before the glory of God? Yeah. What does it also look like for God's people to realize the consequence of not obeying every jot and tittle of his law? Yeah. Yeah. Both these things are on display. Right. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, and I think as we read this in our day, maybe not just in our day, but I mean, like, I, there's part of my heart that wants to go like, man, like I really feel for Uzzah because like, yeah, like it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a pretty natural reaction in that moment. Something's falling. You just reach out and grab it like that. I get that. And I'm like, if I was him, I would have done the same thing, you know, probably. Um, and, and, and so I guess there's part of me that wants to say like, man, like this just seems like a, an innocent mistake like that, you know, and, and, but that's not how the Lord sees it. And I think part of it is right. He's given specific instructions. Like there, he's not been, uh, absent or unclear. Like he's told them how to do it. They've ignored that or forgotten it. And then secondly, it's, it's like, what is it that he touches? Th- this is the, the symbolic presence of God. Um, and, and man cannot see God or be with God or, or touch God and live. And he's, he said that to Moses, uh, in the past as well. Um, so let me jump from this. So, cause I think this will be helpful to tie into our tidbit. I think biblical theology helps us in a lot of ways. I think one of the ways that it helps us the most is thinking about how does what we're studying connect to Jesus and how does it apply to us? And so, as we think about what we're reading here with, with the ark and God's presence and his glory and, and the death of Uzzah, how do we begin to connect this to Jesus? Like, what, what does this have to do with our Lord? Hmm. I don't want to make it too quick because I was thinking of something else. We can jump to your thing. No, no, no. I mean, I want to stick with this. The one thought I think is that those who, in some regards, gave a nod. Like, Jesus is the Word made flesh. Uh The tablets of stone are inside of the ark. The Lord has said when he made the ark, my presence will be there. Yeah. Yeah. Among my people from that location. That will be my seat. Right. Jesus shows up and John says, John's gospel, we've seen his him glory. who has glory. Yeah, glory is glory the is only son, son from the Father. Right. So at one level, we need to see that Jesus is the embodiment of the glory of God, that the ark was a shadow pointing toward. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so how people handled Christ. Yeah. That's, I don't want to go too quickly to that, but how yeah. people had reverence, awe, Worship, respect for Christ with the authority that he had. Right. You might see some shadows of that in this text where people were casual, dismissive. Of, this is how we handle God's glory. Yeah. And even what we're preaching right now in Matthew. Yeah. This yeah. is my son. Right. Do what he says. I'm pleased with him. This is the glory of God. Do what has been said. Yeah. So there, I just yeah. wonder if in this text there's there's a connection to Christ there, but also there's more casual celebration here mm-hmm. than the words show on the page. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, that's that's good. Um, th- this may be a somewhat of a curveball in some ways, but one thing it makes me think is that uh, I don't know. I feel like every now and then you'll see something advertised from the History Channel, for instance, or something like that of people looking for something. And like sometimes, like there's some people who would like make a big deal out about looking for the Ark of the Covenant. Like, hey, what if we found this? I think one of the things that biblical theology says is, who cares? Like, that this at this time it was incredibly important, obviously, in this context. But like what we see in the Gospels is that Jesus is everything that the Ark anticipated. Right. And so, like, who cares if we find the Ark? We Jesus has come. Like we've seen His glory. Like that's what John says in John one. And so I think it helps us in that. And the other thing I, I was thinking is that. Like usually, and we talked about this two weeks ago in a separate context, but when I think of God's presence with us, that like that's a, a comforting thought. There's <laughs> some, some music for you. Uh, that's Jim's computer turning on some music. But uh, like I think of God's presence as this good, comforting thing, and, and it is. Like God, right. that's God's promise to His people is that He be with us, and so. What's happening in this story is is God's presence is coming into the city under the anointed king. Like that's a, they should be celebrating. So that's good, uh, but it's also a terrifying prospect. Right. And I think that this passage helps me understand that more. Like the terror of the glory of God, and that's and we see that at Mount Sinai, when when God gives them the Ten Commandments, like the, all throughout, like the the presence of God with sinful people is terrifying. Well, also good. And, and that, I think to me, thinking about both of those ideas, the the good of the glory and the terror of the glory, it drives me to Jesus that in Jesus we do get the good of the glory because he suffered for all of the sin that, that would make it terrifying. Yeah. So. Well, and I, the, the good of the glory and the terror of the glory are going to continue in this story. Yeah. To come back into the text. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Verse 13, those who, basically, you're going to have David take the ark up um, uh, to the city of David. Uh, that's after it stays at Obedim's house for a while. And those who bore the ark of the Lord, whenever they'd gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. That's Verse, a lot of sacrificing. Yeah. Every six and steps. And so you just have this reverent uh-huh. fear but it's still not disassociated from the good because verse 14 and David danced before the Lord with yeah. all his might. Um, and so you just have this. I mean, but then the next thing it says he's wearing a linen ephod, which a priest should wear, and David's not a priest. So, um, anyway, we have all sorts of complications already. Yeah, I think we have things evidence that David's also not the king that they're waiting on already. We see little hints, uh-huh. so there's a lot of that in this text. But for the case of what we're talking about. You have the terror and the accessibility uh, of rejoicing yeah. mixed together, which yeah. is great. Yeah. Yeah. And so, right, this is round two. Um, and right, if we get into 16 to the end, the Ark of the Lord came into the city. So there's there's all this, right, David's dancing. There's all this rejoicing. Uh, then Mikael, Saul's daughter, who's David's wife. But in the text, she's called Saul's daughter. She's not labeled as... David's wife as much. Right. She's looking out the window. She sees David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Right? And then that that goes on from there. There's more offerings. Uh, David blesses the people. Um, he gives to the people. Like, there's there's a feast going on. 
uh, David returns to bless his household, and there he meets Miko. And it's not what he was anticipating, I'm sure. No. No. And this text, what stands out to me of the years of kind of knowing what it's pointed to is when he has this interaction with Miko, one of the things that he does is he says to her, she's embarrassed of him. Uh-huh. She's saying, you acted shamelessly. You, you uncovered yourself. And David says, verse 21, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me to be prince over Israel, and I will make Mary before the Lord. So, again, one of the things that's a takeaway for me is David is in rapture and has been from the beginning. He brings 30,000 soldiers. He has a major learning lesson as king. Yeah. Major failure in some regards of honoring the law of God as well as even respecting the glory of God. But then you have this glorious kind of return to say, David is so all about the glory of God. Of God, yeah. that He is willing to look at me, Cal, and say, "I don't really care what you think." <laughs> you know? like it, that that doesn't matter to me. He, you know, yeah. even verse twenty-two, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes. And so, yeah, his his focus is. You said enraptured. I mean, that he, he is so enraptured, um, captivated by God's glory, and that that's his one focus. Yep. Um, in the second half of the text. Um, and so, and I, you know, I, I think I've always wondered, I mean, it's interesting when she said, right, as you've uncovered yourself as one of these vulgar fellows and, and like that, that does sound pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we, I mean, if we look back and you've already mentioned it, like he was wearing a, a linen ephod, it, it wasn't inappropriate in some, like we, we could read this as kind of a sexually right. inappropriate type of way, but that's not what's going on. He's wearing a linen ephod and she, she's more talking about the nobility or yeah. whatnot. Yeah. I think of it. Well, and even to go into biblical theology for a second, um, there is a contrast with Saul. When Saul was first installed, Saul is afraid of what the people are going to think of him. Saul is hiding behind luggage. That's interesting. And so yeah. Saul is this shadow. He's the anti shadow. Yeah. <laughs> David's yeah. a shadow of the Christ to come, but you still have from day one, the people's chosen King was, full of fear of others and it was a part of his own destructive descent and we talked about that when we preached that book but now one of the earliest visible pictures we have of david after he's anointed is shamelessly worshiping and dancing and celebrating god's faithfulness to his people to the point that he says oh you ain't seen the half of it you're gonna be so ashamed of me yeah because i'm i'm before the lord and all that i do yeah and I mean, then we can get into probably, I would say, an easier connection to Christ uh-huh. is to stick with David, not the ark as much. You know, uh-huh. the ark is the presence of God, but David being the shadow king of Jesus. When Jesus came, he had to know who he was. Yeah, He would be mocked. He'd be laughed at. He'd be despised. Yeah. He would be challenged. And he ultimately said, Father, my will is, I want to do your will. Yeah. And so you just have the consistency. Yeah of this same thing we're seeing all the way to its biggest fruition in Jesus. Yeah. Um, it made me think of, uh, even text-wise, in Hebrews 1, I mean, it doesn't use the word celebrate, but Hebrews 1, verse 12, um, he's talking about Jesus there, and he quotes, let's see what he quotes here. It, it, this is from Psalm 22, where he quotes, but um, 
He's talking about Jesus and, and ascribes the words of Psalm 22 to Jesus, which say, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And so like that description of Jesus in the midst of God's people singing God's praise. Um, I mean, it's, it's fascinating for me to think about that and like what that means and, and how that affects me and how that affects us as a church. But like just think about how David among the people is just so enraptured with God and celebrating him. And then we read about, yeah, that's, that's what Jesus did. Like he was among God's people. He's among God's people now leading us in celebratory praise of our God and our King. Um, and so that's, I think that's a helpful thing for me to see in this text. In biblical theology, we always want to ask, where are we at in the story? And th- there's a lot of development that's going on in this chapter particularly. Yeah. So it's forecasting. Yeah. But if we kind of look back into the life of David that we saw in 1 Samuel also, we've, you know, he was patient and would not take things into his own hands. He trusted the Father. Uh-huh. Uh, once he's actually installed, Saul dies, you know, David grieves, yeah. and he has to do some things where he is establishing a kingdom of justice. We saw that with Abner, Joab, that whole, the last right. chapters we've looked at. Now this is one of the first times we see David just passionately worshiping. Yeah. So yeah. a lot of the things we're seeing, again, biblical theology rubric, we just pan out. Mm-hmm. We go, okay, we're seeing this and David, this and David, this and David, this and David. Mm-hmm. How do they forecast where the scriptures are going to say, don't you see this about Christ, this about Christ, this yeah. about Christ, this about Christ. Yeah. And so without panning out. Yeah. We won't be able to preach Christ effectively. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. And I'll, I'll give one other uh, kind of application or biblical theology uh, thought with this is um, like the, the presence of God results in in this just exuberant celebration. And that should be the case. And I don't, I think sometimes we can miss that. I mean, I, I can miss that, that there should be so much uh, celebration and joy when I think about God being with us. And we can think about that now, but I mean, I think if, if we go creation, fall, redemption, uh, what was your final word? Glory. Glory. Like when we think about glory, when Christ turns, like that time is a time of unending celebration yeah. and joy. Yeah. That this passage is a is a beginning echo yep. of that future celebration. So, absolutely. Now, I think Christ community people are probably more used to us doing this because we've been in a lot of Old Testament narrative. Yeah. So. Some of what we're talking about is not new. I hope we do it every time. Right. But it still is a critical skill to understand. It's an intentional thing to yeah. be utilizing biblical theology and studying a text. Yeah. And that's kind of the goal of what we do. Absolutely. All right. Well, until next week. You got it.